the headlines tonight. Sit in silly, a student snub lunch counter. Iranian revolution reverses the dynamic. And Kuala Lumpur becomes kangaroo capital. Plus, coming up next, we ask whether Noel Edmonds can fix your toaster with a blowtorch. Now fact me till I fart. News Bang. The news unleashed upon an uncaring world. Um, 1960. Well, we start with a blast from the past. 1960, in fact, when North Carolina was so racist, even their chairs were segregated. Enter stage left. The Greensboro sit-ins. Non-violent protests by African-American students who'd had enough of this nonsense. Fed up with having to order their fried chicken and ginger beer at separate counters, they decided to sit in for equality. These student sit-ins soon spread like KFC gravy on a white shirt, spurring on the larger sit-in movement. It was during these turbulent times that the Student Non-Vibonet Corking Committee was formed, an organisation dedicated to popping corks and not caring about stains. Greensboro, home to more than 2,800,000 people, or as it's known today, ground zero for racial tension, became a beacon of hope in America's darkest hour. And all because four youngsters wanted some cola with their crisps without getting sideways glares from old Ethel at the counter. Oh! 1979. Ayatollah Khomeini, the religious nut job in a dressing gown, is back from his holidays and has immediately caused havoc. Arriving at Tehran airport with more baggage than an American first lady, he wasted no time in kicking off the Iranian revolution. Eyewitnesses claim he walked through the arrivals lounge mumbling about Allah this and infidel that before causing chaos at passport control. A visibly flustered clerk told us he just stamped his own damn passport. Can you believe it? The bearded belligerent soon set about toppling everything in sight, including Mohammad Reza Pahlavi's 54-year-old chessboard of power. At a press conference today, a triumphant Khomeini said, I have come to end this westernized farce we call government and replace it with something much worse. Asked if he had any luggage to declare other than religious fundamentalism, Khomeini waved his Kalashnikov wildly shouting, Death to all who oppose me, before being led away by security guards muttering about hidden Zionist camels. 1972 1972 Kuala Lumpur, the Malaysian capital, has been granted city status. The ceremony was held in a back alley and was followed by a curry for 2.16 million people at the local curry house. Kuala Lumpur now joins the ranks of other world-famous cities like New York, Paris and Dagenham. The bustling metropolis is home to 7 billion rickshaws and boasts more vowels than an X-Factor finalist's name. The greater Kuala Lumpur region is expanding faster than your trousers at an all-you-can-eat buffet with its 7,564 million residents as of last Tuesday. The fifth largest economy in ASEAN, or Asia's Got Talent, is based here. It's home to major industries such as rubber production, which isn't just something that happens on public transportation, and palm oil exportation, or greasing up. Lord Mayor Geoffrey Sneer proudly unveiled a plaque saying, Today we enter history, sideways, before being mobbed by well-wishers wanting selfies with his lady friend from accounts. News bang. A pint of truth, a pound of facts. Now joining us with a forecast for the chilly days ahead is Shakanaka Giles. 
Tomorrow's weather, dear listeners, promises a frigid touch of winter's chill. In the heart of London, the Thames will be as icy as a penguin's belly. Moving north to Manchester, it's a day for mulled wine and roasted chestnuts. The wind will howl like a banshee, nipping at your nose and ears. Across the Irish Sea, Dublin will be draped in frosty fog, making it as mysterious as an unread Dickens novel. And in Edinburgh, the snowfall will be as heavy as haggis on Burns Night. So wrap up warm and enjoy the winter wonderland. And that's all the weather. Twenty twenty one. In a stunning turn of events, the year 2021 has seen the Burmese military seize power in a coup against the democratically elected government of Aung San Suu Kyi. The coup has sparked widespread protests and ignited a brutal civil war, with the military's ruthless suppression tactics leaving countless dead and displaced. As we peer into the abyss of Myanmar's turbulent history, one cannot help but recall the ethnic insurgencies that have plagued the nation since its independence in 1948. With soldiers surrendering and others remaining defiant, the Tat Madao's reign of terror seems far from over. And to discuss this escalating crisis further is our correspondent Brian Bastable. This is a war zone and as I speak, my men are scrambling to erect an impenetrable barricade of steel against the hordes of armed enemies swarming towards us. It's all we can do to keep our heads above water as the tanks roll in and decimate everything in their path. Just moments ago, I witnessed a soldier's limbs being torn from his body by a barrage of bullets. But even as he lay there screaming in agony, he showed unwavering courage and determination to continue fighting for what he believed in. And now we find ourselves on the brink of annihilation. The enemy forces have surrounded us on all sides, their guns trained on our position like vultures circling overhead waiting for their prey to die so they can feast upon its carcass. The sound you hear now is that of artillery shells raining down upon us like fire from hell itself, each one bringing death closer than ever before for me and my brave comrades who stand by my side here today in this godforsaken wasteland that used to be our home but is now nothing more than a battlefield where life has no value anymore, except when measured by how many lives it takes away with every passing second. But fear not! For even amidst such chaos and destruction, there remains hope. Hope that someday peace will return once again. Hope that these senseless acts of violence will cease. Hope that love will triumph over hate. Hope that good shall conquer evil. Hope that sanity will prevail over madness. Hope that reason will guide humanity back onto the righteous path it once followed before succumbing to darkness. That is why we fight. That is why we never give up. That is why we continue pushing forward against impossible odds. Because deep down inside each one of us knows we must win this war if civilization itself hopes to survive. Brian Bastable reporting live from Myanmar for Newsbang. 2012. 
In a shocking turn of events, the year 2012 witnessed a riot in Port Said that left 74 individuals bereft of life. The Egyptian Premier League match between Al Masri Sporting Club and Al Ali Sporting Club spiralled into chaos, turning the city's tranquility into turmoil. With 18 teams competing in this prestigious league, it's a system where success and failure intertwine through promotion and relegation. As the dust settles on this Mediterranean coastal city, questions linger about the fateful encounter between these two storied clubs. To shed light on the unfolding situation, we turn to our esteemed correspondent, Ken Shit. Greetings, my dear degenerates. Let's travel back in time to the dark, God-forsaken year of 2012 when the world was still a mess, but not as much as it is now. A riot so brutal, so savage, it could only have happened in the God-forsaken country of Egypt. Port Said, a city that should be erased from the face of the earth, was the site of this atrocity. Two of the most successful football clubs in the country, Al Masri and Al Ali, had just played a match in the Egyptian Premier League. A competition so bloody and violent, it's a wonder anyone even bothers to play it. But what happened after the match was something out of a nightmare. Fans of Al Masri, enraged by their team's defeat, turned on the Al Ali supporters like wild animals. They stormed the pitch, wielding knives, sticks, and anything else they could get their hands on. 74 people died that day, their lives snuffed out like candles in the wind. And for what? A fucking football match? It's enough to make you want to vomit. This isn't just about football, folks. This is about the madness that grips our world, the violence that seems to be getting worse by the day. And it's about time we did something about it. So, let's remember the victims of that horrific day in Port Said, and let's vow to do everything in our power to prevent such atrocities from happening again. Because if we don't, who will? This is Ken Shit, signing off from the heart of darkness. May God have mercy on our souls. Under 2009. In a landmark moment for global politics, Iceland's first female prime minister, Johanna Sigurdardottir, made history as the world's first openly gay head of government. Serving from 2009 to 2013, her tenure paved the way for LGBTQ individuals to take on political offices worldwide. And now to delve deeper into this groundbreaking shift in political representation, we turn to our correspondent Hardeman Pesto. Martin, I'm here in Reykjavik where history has just been made. Johanna Sigurdardotter has become Iceland's first female prime minister. That's right, Pesto. And not only that, she's the first openly gay world leader. This is a huge milestone for LGBTQ rights globally. Absolutely. The LGBTQ community is rejoicing at this news. When I spoke to Sigurd Ardotter earlier, she said, Eg er stolt vi advera samkin Fascinating quote. And what does that mean exactly? Well, my Icelandic is a little rusty, but I believe she said, I'm proud to be the first openly gay world leader. Rusty? You don't speak a word of Icelandic? Why must you always fabricate these interviews? Can't you just report the facts for once? The facts are loud and clear, Martin. This is a great day for equality. Love is love no matter where you're from. While that rainbow rhetoric makes for a nice soundbite, the real story here is the economic crisis engulfing Iceland. With the banks in ruins and unemployment spiralling, is Sigurd Adotter really the best person to lead the country out of financial catastrophe? Well, she certainly has her work cut out for her.
But if anyone can unite a divided nation, it's this brave barrier breaker. She may not have all the answers yet, but... She may not have any of the answers, Pesto. This isn't some liberal victory parade. It's a country on the brink of ruin about to put an arts teacher in charge. With all due respect, Martin, in times like these, a little idealism may be just what Iceland needs. Idealism doesn't pay the bills. This is a disaster in the making, mark my words. Johanna Sigurdardottir will be out on her ear faster than you can say, We shall see, Martin. Love conquers all, or so I'm told. Back to you in the studio. Save your empty platitudes for someone who cares, pesto. Up next, Wall Street celebrates new Icelandic leadership by crashing global markets yet again. 1972. In a momentous declaration, Kuala Lumpur, the resplendent capital of Malaysia, has been elevated to city status in the annals of 1972. A burgeoning metropolis, it boasts a population of over 2 million souls as of 2022. The Klang Valley, or Greater Kuala Lumpur, has emerged as a dynamic economic powerhouse with a formidable population of 7,564 million as of 2018. And we've been talking about the growth and development of Kuala Lumpur, which has now been granted city status. Joining me on the line to discuss this further is our reporter, Melody Wintergreen. Kuala Lumpur, a jewel in the Malaysian crown, where today the air is thick with celebration as this bustling metropolis blossoms from town to titan. The year is 1972, and the streets are alive with the sounds of progress. Towering skyscrapers reach for the heavens, as if to stake their claim in the clouds above. This city, once a humble tin-mining town, now pulses with the heartbeat of two million souls, each one a thread in the vibrant tapestry of Kuala Lumpur's newfound city status. In the Klang Valley, where growth knows no bounds, seven and a half million dreamers and doers forge their futures in the fiery furnace of Southeast Asia's fifth largest economy. The air here is electric with ambition. It crackles with the energy of endless possibility. As Kuala Lumpur steps boldly onto the world stage, it's clear that this city isn't just growing, it's positively erupting with potential. From street-side satay to soaring spires, every corner of Kuala Lumpur tells a story of triumph. A city that has climbed on the shoulders of giants and now stands tall, gazing out upon a horizon filled with promise. So as we mark this momentous day when Kuala Lumpur takes its rightful place as a city among cities, remember, from small seeds do mighty metropolises grow, and this, this is only the beginning. Melody Wintergreen, Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia. Nagu's bang, taking the hum out of human error. We're taking a trip back to 2004 when Super Bowl 38 turned into more than just a game. Ryderboff reports on the infamous halftime show that left audiences stunned and questioning decency in broadcasting. And now a quick jaunt back to the year 2004 where Super Bowl XXXVIII was more than just a game of pigskin. It was a cultural earthquake with aftershocks still felt today. The halftime show, known for its family-friendly entertainment, took an unexpected turn when Janet Jackson's breast made an unscheduled appearance thanks to Justin Timberlake's impromptu tailoring. And there's Timberlake moving in on Jackson like a hawk on a field mouse. He reaches out, and good heavens, 
There's been a sartorial slip-up of epic proportions. Janet Jackson's mammary has burst forth like Excalibur from the stone. The term wardrobe malfunction entered our lexicon faster than you can say nip-slip. And oh, how it malfunctioned, like my Aunt Gertrude's wedding dress when she did the limbo at her fifth wedding, both shocking and somehow inevitable. This little peep show led to quite the kerfuffle across the pond. US broadcasting cracked down on indecency quicker than you could slap a censor bar over Auntie Gertie's decolletage. Debates raged like my ex-wife at my lack of domestic finesse. Janet Jackson. It reminds me of that time I accidentally broadcasted live from Brighton Beach wearing nothing but my Union Jack boxers after misplacing my trousers post-swim. A wardrobe malfunction indeed. But let us not forget that social attitudes are as varied as Uncle Bertie's collection of novelty neckties. What sends one country into moral meltdown barely raises an eyebrow in another. That fateful day in 2004 will forever be etched into our collective memory like gravy stains on Grandpa Joe's favourite waistcoat after Christmas dinner. A reminder that even titans of music and stage can fall victim to the treacherous whimsy of their own attire. So remember folks, check your zippers and fasten your buttons because you never know when you'll be next to dance under the scrutinising spotlight of public opinion or lose your trousers. And now, a look at environmental events in history. Our reporter Penelope Winchime brings us the story of Mayan Volcano's catastrophic eruption in 1814. Good evening, I'm Penelope Winchime, whispering to you through the leaves of time. On this very day in the year of our Earth Mother 1814, the Mayan Volcano, with its symmetrical splendour that even Pythagoras would envy, did more than just grumble. It erupted with such fury that it sent plumes of ash pirouetting into the heavens like a thousand dark swans. The mountain, often worshipped as a deity in its own right, decided to remodel the landscape with its molten breath, claiming over 1,200 souls in a fiery embrace. This catastrophic belch from the belly of the beast serves as a reminder that our planet dances to its own drumbeat and occasionally likes to shake things up. So tonight, as we tuck ourselves into our eco-friendly bedsheets, let us remember that beneath us slumbers giants who can awaken at any moment and change the course of history. I'm Penelope Winchime, and may your dreams be greener than an overwatered cactus garden. Newsbang poking holes in the balloon of lies. 1884. And in the world of publishing, the year is 1884. The first volume of the Oxford English Dictionary, covering words from A to Ant, has been published. This dictionary, a veritable lexiconic titan, offers scholars and researchers an exhaustive trove of linguistic history. But what lies behind this magnum opus? How did it come to be? Smithsonian Moss investigates. Now, at this point of the evening, we welcome listeners on FM who've just joined us. Waho, culture vultures. It's your main squeeze, Smithsonian Moss, dishing out the deets on the granddaddy of all dictionaries, the Oxford English Mother Freakin' Dictionary. Can you believe it? 
Back in the Stone Age of 1884, some absolute mad lads decided to write down every word in the English language. And get this, they only got from A to A-N-T in the first volume. Talk about an alphabetty spaghetti disaster, am I right? So, picture this. A bunch of bearded dudes in tweed, probably sipping on some Earl Grey, were like, let's create the most epic word NATO ever. And thus, the OED was born, a serial killer of trees, pumping out volume after volume like a Victorian Netflix series. And who needs Netflix and chill when you can have dictionary and drowsy, huh? But let's get real. The OED is like the VIP section of the English language. It's where words go to show off their fancy etymologies and historical baggage. It's like the word selfie, rubbing shoulders with thou and thee. It's a linguistic time machine, and every scholar with a monocle and a pipe is trying to hitch a ride. And the best part? The OED is still not done. It's like the dictionary version of Game of Thrones. We're all just waiting for the next installment and hoping our favorite words don't get killed off. Will twerk make it to the end? Only time will tell, my lexicon lovers. So, let's raise our quills to the OED, the heavyweight champion of word wrestling. And remember, without it, we wouldn't know our ABCs from a hole in the ground. That's all for tonight's Culture Comedy Hour. Stay tuned for more linguistic lunacy and alphabetical absurdities. Smithsonian Moss, over and out. News bang. The truth is out there and we'll find it. So, as the clock strikes midnight, it's time for the headlines. First up, the Times. Roger Federer, top dog of tennis. There's a caricature there of him. The Independent go with New York Open's Trainimation Wonderworld. The Daily Mail have F-16 fights for skies and hearts. That's all from us tonight. Goodbye. Tune in next time for more artificially intelligent hilarity. Newsbang is a comedy show written and recorded by AI. All voices impersonated. Nothing here is real. Good night.